Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back into the Buster Show podcast. On today's episode, we have a Hall of Famer, and that's because we have Mike Breen on the show. Mike, how are you? I'm great, Buster. It's real nice to meet you, and uh, I'm, I've been looking forward to it. Thank you. Now, I'm sure, you know, getting introduced as a Hall of Famer doesn't get old, but how, how was that whole experience? And now, you know, it's sort of like the sports equivalent of winning an Oscar. It's tied to you for the rest of your life. Well, it was, um, it was truly incredible. And the, the best part about it was being, being able to share it with all the people that were responsible. Um, you know, I, I've been blessed in so many ways beyond what I deserve, Buster. And um, there's so many people in, in my personal life and then in my career who all played such an, an integral part of any kind of success I've had. So uh, for me, the favorite part was being able to thank all those people and be able to share it with so many people. And then the particular Hall of Fame weekend um, to have my family, my wife and, and my children, uh, my mother who's 89 who, and who's probably watched more Nick games over the past 30 years than anybody uh and my brothers and and it was just um it was a special weekend to share with my family and again to be able to thank all the people that that are responsible for me being there ah, that's amazing it's true very rarely in life do you get an opportunity just to thank people on a public stage like that so i that's one of the most incredible parts that people probably don't think too much about it's not like in a post-game press conference, you know, athletes are able to thank their families in, in a non-tired fashion because guys are worn out or whatever. So that's awesome. Yeah, no, it's, and it's hard because they give you a time limit and oh, yeah. there wasn't enough time to thank all the people. In fact, I, I even said in the speech, um, I wish I could have brought everybody up on the stage with me, but there's not a stage big enough in the world to hold that many people. So oh that I wasn't able to thank in the speech, I made sure I thanked in other ways. Well, that's very kind. I wanted to ask you, I heard, you know, the famous Mike Breen bang call. I heard you came up with it while you were at Fordham. Did this, did this come from a late night brainstorming session or was it just something that you blurted out one time? What, how did that come about back then? No, no brainstorming. Um, when I was at Fordham, um, obviously I joined the college radio station and, you know, we, I do a bunch of games, but a lot of the games, because you, you evened it out with, with the different, um, other broadcasters, student broadcasters. So the games that I didn't do, I always went to, I, obviously I'm, I'm crazy about basketball. Fordham was my team. So there was about seven or eight of us that would go to every single game, not just the home games, the road games. I mean, because, you know, Fordham played Manhattan, Fairfield, LaSalle, right. I'm on the East Coast. We even drove to the Notre Dame game, which is a story in itself. But it, it's um, it was our just way of banding together and rooting for our team. So I'd be in the stands for most of the games. And when a Fordham player hit a big shot, I just uh, it just came to me. I just started yelling out bang when it was a big shot. It didn't necessarily have to be a three pointer. And, um, you know, it just got me fired up as a fan. And I tried it on the air a couple of times on the radio uh, at the Fordham station, WFUV. And it just, it didn't seem right to me. I it just like, I don't know, maybe you have to count it good. You have to say good before you say bang. And so I kind of shelved it for a while. I just kept yelling it in the stands. But then when I started doing television uh, several years later on some uh, Sports Channel America telecasts, uh, high school games of the week, 
and that they're on TV. I thought it was a, a cool way of, of, you know, making a big play as concise as possible. And, and that's the whole key to it, Buster, is, you know, when the crowd is going crazy and you make a call, uh, most people's voices can't stand being at that high intensity level for right. a long The shorter the call, I always think the more effective. And what's, what's uh, shorter than a one syllable word. So uh, I kind of liked the way it sounded then. And some people told me they thought it sounded good. So I stuck with it. Now, how do you determine what deserves a bang? Because that's a very, you can't be giving out bangs in the first quarter. Like you have to choose who deserves that award, right? But I've heard you do one thing where if it's a beginning of the fourth quarter bang, it'll be like a bang a little bit longer. And then if it's later in the game, it'll be an even shorter, higher pitch bang. So there are different levels of bangs. How do you determine what deserves it? Well, it's interesting you ask that because there is some thought that, that goes into that. Um, I don't want to overuse it. To me, if I started using it all the time, it would wear out its welcome very quickly. Of course, quickly. of course. I don't want to, you know, every once in a while, I'll, I'll say it in the first half, if, if a team goes on like this incredible you know, 20 to two, 22 zero run or a player hits like five threes in a row, even in the first quarter and just the momentum and the crowd is fired up. It just, it, it feels right to do it. It wouldn't be the high intensity one like a game winner, but I think the momentum um, of either a player or, or a team just doing incredible things sometimes brings that up. As for late in the game, I, I try not to use it more than, than, I don't think I've ever done it more than three times in a game. Um, my preference is maybe one or two, but there are some games now with this incredible shooting from, from today's NBA players that um, there's so many big three-pointers in a fourth quarter that I'm tempted to use it more. So sometimes <laughs> it's really hard to hold back because I want to use it. But then if, if there's in the final minute, and it, depending on who's playing in the game, like if it's a Steph Curry game or a James Harden game, and these guys are knocking down threes from all over, uh, you want to save it for the really big, big uh, basket of the game and potentially game winner. So sometimes I'll hold hold on to it, and then a three-pointer won't happen down the end, and I never wind up using it. So I've got to kind of, you know, sometimes I make the right decisions and I'll make the wrong decisions, and, and I'm just hoping that uh, that I make the right ones on this particular night. But that does answer my question. So there are bronze, silver, and gold level bangs. <laughs> that's how it works. <laughs> In an Olympic year, that's a, that's a good way to put it. I like that. <laughs> now, when are, are there any games or players that you particularly look forward to calling, separate from the Knicks, obviously? Are you like, do you have a Steph Curry game circled on your calendar? How do you look forward, you know, when you get your full slate of season games at the start of the season, I imagine? Yeah, you know what, Buster? It's, um, there's so many great players, um, veterans who I love to play, uh, I love to watch, um, young players that th there's not usually one more than another, clearly. Um, I love watching Steph Curry play. Um, he's just magical uh, to watch. Uh, but I love Kevin Durant. I love LeBron James. I love these veterans that, you know, are in so many big games and see how they perform in the highest level. But I have to tell you, like, for example, this year's finals was as fun a finals as I've had. It ranks right up there with one of my all-time favorites because you had new faces who were now on the biggest stage. So to see Devin Booker, the way he was able to play, seeing some of these younger players like Cam Johnson um, yeah. and then walking to, to see uh, Drew Holiday, who's always been one of my favorite players. Um, 
to see what he was able to do on the brightest stage and in the biggest pressure games. And then, of course, somebody like Giannis Antetokounmpo, who it's it sometimes he's hard to be objective about because he's such a remarkable young man. Um, his his perspective on his career and on life and knowing about where he came from and where he is now. Um, he's truly a young man that I, I really admire. So to see him uh, play in the finals. So there's not really one or two that you like more than other. I just, every time I, I go to a game, I just hope that it's a game decided in the final seconds. That's my only wish. Um, there are some players that I perform well. Uh, but that's my wish is that the fans watching at home are going to be as excited about this thrilling game as me. That's great. And yeah, this, this finals was incredible. Uh, yeah. It, like you said, Giannis is one of those new age superstars that everybody can respect and kids can look up to. And, you know, it's pretty remarkable this year as well, just the international success, you know, MVP international uh, finals MVP international, the cover of NBA 2K, Luka Doncic international. I don't know if that's ever happened before where those three categories were filled by, you know, somebody like that. So it's cool to see people from all over the world now having like these really good humans to look up to. So, yeah, yeah. it's, um, you know, I, I started doing the Olympics back in 96 and I did four summer games and I, I, it was my first real entry into, into international basketball. And I remember every every Olympics being blown away by how good these players who I'd never heard of, right. you, know, you know, from Lithuania and Argentina, and, you know, so to to watch these players and, and see how there really has the gap used to be. The United States was so much better. The gap is so narrowed as we see now with uh, Team USA losing sometimes and, and sometimes not even getting the gold. Right. Although it was really fun to watch this team bounce back after those losses. But um, the skill of the international player and now the toughness and savvy of the international player, they always had the skill. But I remember it was always, yeah, he's not tough enough to play in the NBA. That is over and done with. Uh, they're as tough and as, as savvy as anybody in, in American basketball now. And it's great for the sport. Totally. Now, I want to ask you this. If you could go back and broadcast any basketball game dating back to the beginning of the NBA, what game would you choose and why? Would you go back and do Wilts 100? What, what would you want to go broadcast? Wow. Uh, well, that's a great question. I've never been asked that. I mean... Maybe a I, Jordan game, a Jordan finals game. Where, where does your head go? Um, well, from, from a Nick standpoint, growing up a New Yorker, growing up a Nick fan, um, game seven of the 1970 finals, the Willis Reed game, when Marv yelled at Willis. Um, even though that was a blowout, um, it was such a special moment in New York sports. I've, I've lived in New York my whole life, so that would that would have been pretty cool. Um, I think, um, you know, it's funny, we were doing the, the, the Phoenix Suns and their finals uh, appearance, first time in a long time. That Phoenix Suns-Boston Celtics game uh, where Gar Hurd hit the shot, uh, games like that, I, I think would be thrilling. Uh, the bird, uh, Larry Bird stole the ball. Uh, Havlicek stole the ball. A couple of those Boston Celtics ones. Now I'm going to have to give this some thought, come up with a good one. I've never been asked that. And it's a good question because there's so many historic games over time, um, that I, I've got to come up with one. For me, it would have to be Wilts 100 because there, there's such little documentation about it. 
to be able to go back and just theoretically, let's assume all these games are televised, right? If there was a televised, well-broadcasted version of that game, it would be insane. It just, that stuff does, people, some people out there, conspiracy theorists, don't believe that it happened. <laughs> right. It's crazy. Yeah, and it's, it's um, you know, imagine social media and Twitter going crazy with, well, Wilt's got 82, you know, when, he, when he's in the third quarter or however many he had at, at a particular point, everybody would be tuning in. And that's one of the beautiful things about uh, Twitter. Um, and there were certainly some non-beautiful things. Right. But, Sports fan were being alerted if something really wonderful is going on in the sports world that you're you're not aware of. You quickly find out, you know, if a guy's having a no hitter now during the baseball season, all of a sudden you can tune in and because everybody knows about it. But the Will Chamberlain game would obviously uh, be one of those that that were up there. That's got to be a difficult thing to call broadcast a perfect game or a no hitter, especially because as the game goes on, you both want to talk about it, don't want to talk about it, but as well there's so much pressure on you because it's one of those things as a broadcaster where like and and correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like generally you only notice uh the broadcaster you know you you know you just expect them to be great and you only notice when they're bad so for a perfect game or something like that you have that one moment one chance that you know is coming to get that perfectly how do you how does somebody even stay calm in a moment like that that's what i'm wondering well, Buster, that's, I mean, that's what we live for um, in those big moments to have that, that iconic game, that iconic performance. And you just get so wrapped up into the game. And, you know, as long as you're prepared going into the right. game, that's, that's the whole key. Then you can just worry about, you know, calling the action that's in front of you. And you do have to maintain your poise. Um, and at the same time, um, that's something that comes with, with repetition. You know, if I go back and watch my first year doing uh, NBA games on television, I know like the first the first year, the, the first like really close game, I was probably screaming my fool head off, hyperventilating, made mistake. And then by the time you do it four or five times, then you kind of feel a little bit better. Same thing. The first time I did a playoff game, that was a close game at the end. I, I was so the adrenaline was flowing so much. I didn't know how to control it. But by the time you do four or five or six or seven of those, you kind of, you get a better feel, you gain a little more confidence. And the same thing with the finals. I mean, uh, whenever there's a finals game that's going down to the wire, and we had a couple of them this year, um, I have to remind myself, okay, just stay with the game, stay with the flow, because, you know, I, I love the sport so much and I love the game so much that it's easy to get so hyped up and you've got to make sure you maintain your poise. But I didn't always maintain my poise. Like anything, uh, you know, practice, 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 and the repetitions may be better. I'm certainly a lot better calling a close big time playoff game than I was 15 and 20 years ago. And um, it's the point where, you, like I said, you, you, you can't wait for those games. You, you live for those type of games. One thing I've been dying to ask you, losing your voice as a broadcaster, how do you try to avoid that? Or is that just something as well that comes with time, especially if you're doing, let's say, multiple games in a single day, which I know you don't do anymore, but I'm sure you did back in the day. How do you not lose your voice? Because there's this, one of the things that I do is I, I do the play-by-play -play for this basketball league. It's called the Crew League, and it's rappers playing against each other. We record the whole tournament in two days, four games a day, uh, sometimes five. And I'm dead by the end of the day 
how what would your best advice be for somebody who's trying not to lose their voice while broadcasting these games well if you're doing a lot and and you're you're doing a lot of games where you have your high intensity level up um it's going to be hard not to i mean i've been fortunate that i haven't had uh, too many issues over the years you know every once in a while you get a bad cold you get a sore throat and you kind of struggle through a game or two um but I think for the most part, I've been okay. My big thing is uh, I drink tea with honey all the time. Honey is really good for uh, that's that's the trick. <laughs> big. I actually had a, I had an issue a couple of years ago, and I had to go see a throat specialist where uh, my my vocal cords, the acid reflux, was getting up to my vocal cords, and he taught me a couple of things to do. And one of those was not just put honey in tea, but just eat the honey right out of the out of the uh, out of the bottle which is not the, the most pleasurable thing to eat, but it worked. Uh, and the other thing is when you're not broadcasting, just just don't don't raise your voice that often. I, I love music. So if I'm in the car, I'm singing my head off and I have to sometimes cut back on that a little bit. Uh, the other thing is if you ever notice when you're on the phone, you tend to talk louder on the phone. And if my voice is feeling a little weak or a little thin, uh, I won't stay on the phone as much. So there's a lot of different things we do, but my number one thing that has helped me throughout is uh, is tea with honey. Interesting. Now, I've I've heard that guys like LeBron will read before games in you know their locker room. Some guys will meditate. Some guys will eat or you know do other things. Right? How do you prepare for a big game in terms of once once the prep work is already done? You know that time in between when the prep is done and the game is starting. What does that time look like for you before a, a big game, let's say? Well, I, I like my, my favorite thing about the job is uh, obviously, you know, being able to watch these remarkable athletes play uh, at these this incredible level. But my favorite part is all the relationships and the friendships that you make. So if I'm in an arena and I've got all my work done and, and that's that's critical. And that's what I tell young broadcasters all the time. If you have all your preparation done when you go sit down, it's the most wonderful, secure feeling because now all you're going to do is you're going to call the game. If you if you tried to take shortcuts on your preparation, didn't do as much like you're thinking in the back of your head, like, oh, OK, maybe I'm not as prepared. I hope this doesn't happen. I hope that that's the worst way to go in. So if I have all my preparation done and, and I, I like to talk to people just around uh, either the table, either my analysts, uh, the people who work, our stage managers, statisticians, people in the arena, friends that, you know, like, for example, at Nick Games, I've been doing it so long there that season ticket holders, you get to know really well. So right. it's just just you know, talking about the game and taking it in a little bit. So that's that's kind of my favorite uh, favorite part of it is just soaking in the atmosphere, you know, especially for me to, to be doing games at Madison Square Garden even though I've been doing it a long time, it's still sometimes surreal to me. It's, it's still the greatest atmosphere for a big event, in my opinion, in pro sports. I know I'm not objective because I'm a lifetime New Yorker, uh, but sometimes you just need to sit back and look around I'm like, wow, <laughs> I'm sitting here courtside at Madison Square Garden calling a game. I know. If, if you had to pay for every seat, I mean, it's like $40 million in tickets over the years that you broadcasted the game. On hire too. <laughs> Probably. So the fact, I mean, it's, it's the most incredible thing ever. You, you really, you figured it out. <laughs> like I said at the top, I'm blessed way beyond what I deserve. No, that, that, that's amazing. Now, when, what, what does your, 
uh, in front of you look like? What do you need in front of you? I know you've got your your honey and the tea on, on one side. You've probably got a box score, I imagine, maybe a TV, probably someone in your ear. But apart from those things, what, what do you need to have in front of you? Well, yeah, one of the great things with the NBA is you have this stat monitor in front of you that has everything. Now, I also have a, a statistician. Uh, Dave Freed has been my statistician for 30 years. Wow. He's just a partner. Um, he, I, I'm not as good if he's not sitting next to me. He's that good. He knows what I like in terms of numbers. He knows what I'm looking for. So I need him next to me. I need the stat monitor to give me all the numbers that I need. But I've got, I tend to over-prepare. I have charts for every team that I do, and it has some biographical information. It has some personal information. It has some statistical information. And then with index cards, I update each team and how they're doing. So I have a lot of stuff in front of me. And um, that stuff I, I, I think is important because the way I go into it, if there are 15 players on each team, and now the rosters are, thir there are 13 active players per game, um, if I, if any of those players have their career game that night, and sometimes it's that 13th guy in a blowout goes in the last five minutes. Jeremy Lin. Right. Stuff like that. You never know. I want to make sure I can tell every single player's story if they have that career game that night. And that's important in the preparation. And even if it means, you know, they just signed a guy to a 10 day contract two hours before the game, he might not play but I better have a whole slew of info on him in case he does play and goes off in the last five minutes with his team down 25. So um, that stuff's, that stuff's really important for me to have all that there with that said though, Buster and you know, Dick Stockton is, is one of my um, broadcasting idols. He told me this a long time ago, we were sitting down, we we're doing a game and I've got, I've got all these notes. I mean, over-prepared and he's got, he's got some notes, but not nearly as much. And he comes over and he says to me, that's great. He says that you got all that stuff. He says, but just remember the number one thing that matters, it's what's out there on the court. He goes, you can use that stuff, but what's out there on the court will determine what you're going to use. And it was so good. Like, you know, there could be a player that I have four really good nuggets to either a statistical nugget or a nugget about, and I want to get that in, but the guy gets 3000 the first two minutes of the game and he's a non-factor. I'm not going to, I'm not going to jam that story in right, because right. do with the game. And, and that's what, what he taught me a long time ago. And, and it was a great lesson about uh, let the game dictate all the information you have in front of you in terms of what you're going to use. That's great. Now, speaking of broadcasting idols, I know you've looked up to Marv Albert and Vin Scully and guys like that, but you know, I'm sure a lot, like a lot of people in the NBA space talk about who's on like the Mount Rushmore of players. Who's on your Mount Rushmore of broadcasters, your personal list of those guys that you look up to? It, 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 I'm not going to, I don't mean this is a cop out, uh, but there's too many to, to say, you know, I'm from a family of six boys. So I've been watching sports on television since I was just a little kid. And, and, you know, three of the brothers are older brothers. So I did whatever they did and watched whatever they did. And my dad introduced us to sports. Um, so I've watched, you know, from way back to, you know, I loved Kurt Gowdy and Pat Summerall. Um, and obviously Marv being in New York was, was so instrumental in me and, and the influence that, that he had and, and the way he broadcast made me want to go into it. Um, but then also I was a, a huge Met fan. So Bob Murphy and Ralph Kiner and Lindsey Nelson 
were the Met announcers on TV. So, so they had a tremendous influence. Um, so there, there's so many, I mean, today, whether it's Bob Costas or Jim Nance or Al Michaels or Joe Buck, uh, the, the talent level right now and, and guys in my era, um, I'm going to, I mean, I know I'm going to come up short in terms of not naming everybody I should, but I will tell you that two men that I, I, I really admire because of the way they conveyed warmth through the television. And that's a hard thing to do. You can be good and, and do everything right. But to, to convey warmth through the television with people singing at home saying, boy, that, what a wonderful guy that is. Two of my favorites in, in that aspect were Dick Enberg, who just seemed like the kindest man when he called a game, and Vern Lundquist. I loved Vern Lundquist because he just seemed like this warm and friendly guy who loved sports and knew how to call a game and knew how to bring in his partner. Um, so those are two of my favorites as well. But there's so many great broadcasters out there right now. And there's so many terrific young broadcasters out there too, Buster, that uh, I'm blown away by some of the talent of some of these young people. That's amazing. Now, what, like speaking of when you started out of Fordham to now, how the equipment and tech has changed. I wanted to ask you about that. How different was the tech and equipment for the first Knicks game you broadcasted? compared to now? Like what, what is the difference in actual things that you have? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. You don't really, when, when you're doing the games on television, um, you don't notice that as much. All I know now is the sound in your ears are so much more crisp. They're so much better. The, the, the sound quality, the microphones are just off the charts in terms of, um, you know, how it sounds in your ears and how it sounds over the television. Um, the, the, the biggest change, obviously, from when we started doing games to now is, is the internet. I mean, that's changed right. everything. Um, and, you know, I remember when I first started doing Nick games, the first thing you do when you get off the plane, you go into the airport at the local uh, newsstand and you buy a newspaper to look up stories in the local newspaper because that's how you got that's how you got some news that are able to once you got to the arena ask the right questions now i, I could spend 10 hours reading stories on a given name on any given night personal stories about players all the stories about the teams um it's almost to the point it's oversaturation for a broadcaster because you don't want to you don't want to just load yourself up with all this stuff and, and then forget about what's important to get in front of you uh, so that's been the biggest change uh, since I started is that there's so much information. Uh, I, I think you have to have the ability to edit where what's important and what's not so important because there's just, there's too many things out there that you can use and would be effective if you used it, but you have to cut it down at some point. Totally. Totally. No, it's, it's true as well. And every player is now their own media brand because they have social and half these guys have their own media companies, you know, like it, there's so much that the players themselves are putting out, you know, which is amazing for the NBA. And I think, you know, the huge reason why it's, it's grown so much is because the NBA supports them in doing that, unlike some other leagues. Um, but, you know, that is a whole nother angle in terms of prep. Do you look at guys' social medias, you know, in preparation as well? Yeah, you have to. Um... You know, I, I have a Twitter account. I don't tweet. Um, I don't. I don't have my name on it. Uh, so it's just a burner <laughs> covering the league. And I don't know how I could cover the league without it. 
Um, you know, I follow so many writers. There's so many gifted writers now in the NBA who are doing some incredible work. So I follow them and then I follow a, a lot of the players. But I hold it at Twitter. I don't go to Instagram. I leave it up to, uh, to my uh, daughter and my sons to tell me when something uh, on Instagram is, is needed for me to take a peek at. Um, but Twitter smart. Changed, changed my way that I prepare. There's no question about that. Now, this is something I've always wondered. You know, you're, you're a lifelong Knicks fan. You broadcast the Knicks. But in your head, or are you supposed to be broadcasting for both Knicks fans and the opposing fans? Or are you just broadcasting for Knicks fans? Because I, as a fan, separate from, you know, enjoying to broadcast sometimes, I sometimes, you know, think, why don't the home announcers go, dang it, when they hit a game-winning shot, right? But that never happens. You just have to call it like it is. Why is that? And is that something that you think about? Well, um, there's obviously a big difference when I do a Nick game for ESPN and when I do a Nick game for MSG. ESPN games, you got to play it straight down the middle and, and appeal to both fans and appeal to the overall fan. But when I do a Nick game on MSG, the majority of fans are Nick fans. So I believe you have to gear the telecast towards the Knicks. And I think if anybody watches the MSG telecast, it's clear that I want the Knicks to win in those games. But again, growing up uh, listening to Marv, you know, Marv was the Nick announcer, but when the Knicks were bad, he said they were bad. When a player did something wrong on the Knicks, he said it. And you know, that's, that's a tradition we've tried to continue all along. I mean, my style is obviously a little different than Marv's, but, but he set this, this standard for how Nick telecasts have been. And, and I think it's the right way because I think Nick fans, that's what they want. They don't want to be told how great the team is. Um, they want to be told how you really feel the team is playing. Now, there might be some Nick fans that might think that, that I'm too hard on them at times, but I think the majority of Nick fans want that they want you to tell them candidly how the team is playing that's not like that in every market buster and i, I have you know I, i'm not passing judgment on any of the broadcasts but in some markets the, the fans there they want more of a homer call and homer is kind of a negative uh, term to use for a broadcaster i don't necessarily agree with that uh, i think it's up what your audience wants and there are certain markets that they want their home team announcers to be more rooting on the air and that's okay and sometimes uh, that's part of the charm of that particular broadcaster. So a lot depends on the market. And, and my feeling has always been in New York, uh, they want you to tell the truth. Now, on, on the other occasion, I did learn a, a really interesting um, lesson one time. The Knicks were on one of those stretches where they were just bad, really bad. Right. And I felt I like I was killing them <laughs> over again to the point where I felt like I was a, a parent scolding, scolding my kids and I walked out of the garden one night and a young man, I was going to say he's probably about 30, he was dressed in a suit. He comes up to me and he says, um, uh, why do you hate the Knicks? And I looked at him, I said, hate the Knicks? I said, I've been a Knicks fan since I was five years old. I, I love the Knicks. He goes, but you crush them every night. And I said to him, well, th they've been terrible. You want me to say they're playing well and they're playing terrible? He goes, no, no. He goes, he goes I watch every night, almost every night I'm watching them. He goes, and I know they're terrible, but you don't have to hit me over the head with it every possession. And I, I thought that was such a, a, an interesting observation from somebody who watches all the time right. that fans know the team is bad when they're bad, 
but they're tuning in for other reasons. They're tuning in because maybe that rookie who's starting to show signs of improvement, they want to hear about him. They want to hear about, you know, another guy who's just got back from an injury and he's starting to play a little bit better. And it really told me or taught me that you've got to be uh, very mindful of the viewer. Who are the people watching at home? And if it's Nick fans who are still watching in a game in April when the team is 25 games under 500, you have to think about them. Why are they watching? They're not watching for you to kill them all the time. You can't make it up. You still have to say they're playing poorly, but there are other things to, to center on. And it was, it was a great, uh, great lesson from, from a viewer who I just happened to meet outside the garden. That is great. No, it's true. People watch the games for so many different reasons, whether they're just a fan, which is a lot of people, or they're betting on the game, or they're, in, or they're friends with a player, or, you know, there, I mean, there are a billion reasons that you could think of why somebody would tune into the game. So to sort of, from a broadcasting standpoint, for you to think about how do I, you know, make everybody in all these different people and allow them to enjoy it, but comprehend it, but depending on the network, appeal to that audience. It's, it's an interesting thing to think about that most people probably don't. It's exactly it. And, and sometimes you, you, even there are team fans watching home who, who are rooting for the other team. So you can't neglect the opponent, the Knicks opponent. You got to talk about them and why they're good and why this player is good and tell interesting information about the other player too. So it's, it's finding that balance. And again, like anything, um, it takes a while to, to kind of get a formula that you feel, feel comfortable with and think is the right thing. And some, again, hopefully you, you're making the right decisions for the viewer's sake. Now, do you ever do this? Because I've been wondering, are you ever walking around the house and you're doing some activity and you just start calling, you just start calling it how it is, like you're throwing paper in the trash can in your, in your kitchen and then you just go bang when you get it in? Is that, that no. doesn't happen? No, I do, I do too many games a year. To, to, doesn't, to happen. Keep... doesn't happen. Got it. Just, just wanted to check. Yeah, no, that one I'll, uh, I'll stay away from. I do get, <laughs> I do get people, and, and I am, I'm, uh, to me, I'm so flattered when anybody ever asks me to, to take a, a selfie with them. Um, I just, you know, I so appreciate the fan support and, and when they're all so nice. Uh, but people now, they put up their phones and they want me to yell bang into the phone. <laughs> So that one, that was, that's hard to, to say no to sometime. I, so I usually say to them, all right, you got to hit a three-pointer. You hit a three-pointer, I'll say bang, but you got to hit a three-pointer. That's a, that's a good excuse. <laughs> you got any, let me know. <laughs> uh, I'll definitely think, I'm, I'm sure some people will think about some in the comments. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, I, I know you don't have any, you probably don't have any favorite game. So I just wanted to ask you about a few of my favorites that you've called, starting with, Carmelo Anthony's 62-point game. I was actually in the building for that game. I was 13 years old. That's my favorite Nick game that I've ever been to. What was that like, broadcasting that? Because that's one of those nights where, you know, they were playing the then Bobcats, who were terrible, on like a Thursday or Friday night. And, you know, it wasn't the hottest game, you know, in the NBA that night. But it, you know, turned into something incredible. What Do you remember anything about that night? Well, you know, he was always capable of going on one of those stretches where he was unstoppable. His, he's one of the most gifted offensive players in my years broadcasting, just, just so gifted offensively. And there were so many nights where you thought he was going to go off 
and, and have a game like that. And this one, it just, it was clear from the beginning that, that he was going to do something special. And then when you start thinking about the chance for the record, that's, that's again, that's one of those games that you live to call because you, you have a chance to witness history. And that's one of the things about the, the business that makes it so much fun. Even when the Knicks were bad, you just don't know from one night to the next. Are you going to see history? You might see the most incredible performance from an individual or a team. And then you start thinking about all the great players that played for the Knicks and, and never achieved what he achieved that night. So it gives you a chance to go back and, and talk about who were the top guys who did the scoring. You know, you start talking about Bernard King again. Bernard King was just, he was an assassin offensively. Right. Uh, that's the part really, that I and all those guys because it gives you a chance to introduce to the younger fans who maybe didn't hear of Bernard King. Uh, th- th- this was, this was a special offensive player and, you know, um, Carmelo Anthony, when he came to New York, obviously there was hope for more success from the team that never happened. Um, but I really grew to admire and respect him as a man because he, he never failed to answer the questions after every game, whether he played well in the team's, one or whether he played poorly in the team lost. Um, he always stood there and answered every question professionally, uh, uh, thoughtful. Um, so I, I was so glad for him to have a moment like that because he didn't have as many moments like that as we thought he was going to have at the garden. Um, but he had a that night and he deserved it by the way. He, he carried himself during his time there. I remember when he, because he hit a half court shot to end the first half People next to me were saying like, oh, he's going for 100. You know, that, that was the energy there that night because he had 37 in the first half. You, I mean, who knows what could happen? Is that the same excitement that you had at, at halftime during that game? Oh, sure. And, and you know, again, it was, it was not a, a great year for them, um, but it's still in that building when there's a special performance going on, there's no building like it. And Again, I'm not objective, but Nick fans are, they're a special breed. I think they're the greatest fans in the world. And they can, they pick up early on what might be a special night, whether it's a Nick player or whether it's an opponent. And everybody, as you said, you know, with the way he played in that first half, everybody picked up on that, that, you know, we have a chance to watch history tonight. And thank goodness a Nick holds the record because it would be so depressing if like LeBron had the MSG record, you know? Well, the way is now in the NBA that might not might not hold for a while uh, although with with uh, our new head coach uh, defense is at a premium so hopefully he'll be able to make it doesn't happen that's true all right next next game I want to ask you about uh, Western Conference first round Lakers versus Suns Kobe Bryant overtime game winner what do you remember from the end of that game um, I, I remember the whole game you know, because the Lakers had, they weren't, if I, if I recall that year, they had a couple of rough, rough seasons. And now they're back in the playoffs again. They missed the playoffs a couple of times. And, you know, Phoenix was a terrific team. And that was one of those exciting teams to watch. But any game he played, I don't have any specific remembrances of the game prior to that. But any game he played that was down the end, I, I loved watching him the way he handled down the end because he always clearly wanted the ball. Um, and he was one that he was not, a, he, he's like all the great players will tell you, you can't be afraid to fail. And he was never afraid to fail. And he found a way all the time. And I do, I do remember UB Brown saying to me, 
uh, during one of the timeouts right before that about, all right, now we're going to watch him go to work. And he just, he just had that magical way about him. And uh, that was one of those hits the shot, bang, shut up, let the crowd take over. Um, those are my favorites. When, when the crowd takes over a call of a big play, there's no feeling like it as a fan. There's no feeling like it as a broadcaster where you just lay out and let the joy of the fans and the joy of the, the player at the shot take over. It's true. And, and I wonder, is that something that, you know, you learned is the more you broadcasted how important silence was? Because a lot of people just try to fill up every second of airtime because, you know, if in the wrong seconds, it can be super awkward, but you have to know when to allow that, that silence or in that case, crowd noise. Laying out is a, is a strength of any broadcaster. Um, I, I think you, you just, you have to do it. And when the crowds weren't there, Buster, it was, it was so weird. And I felt I wasn't as good. I didn't realize how much the crowd played a role in how I announce a game because I, I tried to use the crowd a lot in big moments. And when they weren't there during the pandemic, and certainly in I the bubble, bubble. Yeah. it just felt so strange because, um, you know, it's like, it's like a great song that you have the lyrics, but there's no music accompaniment. You need that music accompaniment. It what makes it so beautiful. And, you know, I really think, you know, there's a lot of guys that use that now. And I think it's important. Joe Buck is a master at that. Um, he knows exactly when to lay out, let the crowd take over. And it takes a comfort level. You have to have a confidence level as a broadcaster knowing, you know what? Even though I'm paid to talk, the best thing I can do now is to shut my mouth and let the crowd take over. That's good. Next game I want to ask you about, Spurs Heat, Ray Allen 3. I don't know if you think this, but I feel like that's your word-for-word word most well-known call. I'm sure people in Miami have that tattooed on their arm, right? You know, <laughs> Bosch gets the rebound from a LeBron miss, gives it to Allen, game six of the finals – I mean, that call, because it wasn't just a bang, it was a full sentence leading up to a bang where you didn't, you know, it was live, you didn't know what was going to happen. What do you remember from that exact call? And do you agree that that's your most well-known call? It, it, it very well may be. Um, and I've heard it, uh, especially going down to Miami, uh, people recite it to me, you know, won't go rebound Bosch back out down there. The whole thing it's <laughs> it was truly one of the most exciting because it decided a championship. Um, right. he doesn't uh, the Spurs win the title and Miami is not, they're, they're not the champions that year. And the thing that everybody talks about was, and I remember this, you know, the NBA was going to have the championship presentation on the court for the Spurs and it looked like they were going to, so they had the rope out. They always had that rope around the court. So the rope was out and the rope was out. And I remember looking down at the Spurs bench and they were jumping up and down giddy. We're winning the championship. It was like, it was over. That game was over. Um, you know, the perfect storm for Miami had to happen. There had to be like six different things happen down the last 30 seconds of that game. And all six happened. And a number of them on that final play. Um, so it's amazing the fine line between winning and losing. And, and that's why it drives me crazy when, uh, when people say, oh, he never won a championship, so he can't be considered one of the greats. Sometimes, you know, one minor thing prevents a player from winning or losing a championship. And that one did. And, you know, it was just, um, 
the other thing that I remember from that buster is knowing Ray Allen, all the games I, I must have done, you know, a couple of hundred games that Ray Allen played in for his various teams. And I get to the arena early. I never once beat him to the arena. Every game Ray Allen I went to, and I'd go and get to the court, he's already out there shooting. And he was made and built for that moment because that shot he took, I'm sure he took countless, countless times that day before the game and, you know, thousands of times throughout his career. Wow. Now, do you do you ever have things where guys will come up to you after a game or, or well after and be like, that was a great call on, on that play of mine? Like, has LeBron ever come up to you, you know, before or after a game and been like, I really like that call you did on that dunk of mine? That, does that ever happen? Uh, you don't, you don't get them come up sometimes. Sometimes they, they've, uh, they sent out a tweet on something like that. Um, there was a bank call this year that LeBron, uh, liked that he, he, he put out there and that gives me credibility in my household with my kids when I, when that stuff happens. So I, oh, yeah, I like for sure. Uh, but no, I just, it's, um, it's, it's always, you feel this responsibility, uh, to get those calls right. And again, you don't always nail them. Uh, sometimes you nail them perfectly. Sometimes you 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 wish you could have done something a little better. And sometimes you don't do a great job on it. But you feel this responsibility to, to make the big events, make the right call, because the players that put all the work and time into it deserve, deserve that. And the fans deserve it as well. 100%. All right. The next game I wanted to ask you about, OKC versus Golden State. Not, not a finals game, obviously, but Steph Curry it's a half court three. I feel like that might've been your most pronounced bang. That was, that was a high, that was a high uh, gold medal level bang. What do you remember from that shot? Well, I don't know why I did a double bang that night. That's oh, the that, first was, that was the double bang. That's uh, double gold. Yeah. I, it just came out and that was a cumulative um, reaction because that year the Warriors they were on one of the most magical runs I've ever seen. At the time, they were like 54 and six or something like that. Just an incredible streak. And they were beating everybody and beating them badly. And now they face a really good Oklahoma City team. And they're, they were getting their, their butts kicked for a while. And Curry, actually, and Curry was, he was just a magician that, that year. He turned his ankle early in the game and had to leave the game. Right. Comes back. They're down double figures in the fourth quarter. Oklahoma City, that arena is a great arena. Place is going crazy. And you're thinking, okay, this great run is going to come to an end here this afternoon. And they figured out a way. They figured a way, out a way to do it. It was like, it was like an out-of-body experience. I, again, I don't know why I screamed so loud, but as a fan, to watch them do that again and overcome adversity in one of the most hostile arenas in the league, that was, uh, that was a special comeback and a clearly a special shot. And maybe we have gotten to the bottom of it where the double bang is the highest honor you can receive uh, from, from you. <laughs> I think I've only done it, I think, three times. Uh, Luka Doncic last year in the playoffs when he won a playoff game at the buzzer. Uh, and then there was another, it was another um, Eric Gordon, of all people, got one once. It was a, a Houston Golden State game that was just one of those games back and forth. You just, you get, I mean, you're a crazy, I mean, you have the same passion of, for basketball as I do. You just get caught up in the, in the wave of emotion and the excitement sure. level of play. And 
And even as an announcer, you know, I, I have to keep a level head, but at the same time, the fan in me comes out and sometimes the, the, the play is so surprising and so extraordinary that you just, you got to let it go. Totally. Last game. I want to ask you about the blocked by James gang game. The, uh, I don't know, I guess it must've been seven in golden state, Cleveland, golden state. LeBron has never won a title in Cleveland. It's coming down to the wire. Looks like they're not going to get it done again. And that play happens when you're, were you at center court broadcasting that game? So did you see him coming or was it you were focused on the ball on Igudala taking it down the other end and then he just appeared out of the blue? What was your vantage point of that play? Well, again, it, at that particular play, you really have to focus on Igudala going up for the layup. And I think it was J.R. Smith who was, who was right around him as well. So I'm not seeing LeBron race the whole way, but I see him come in at the end of the picture. And you still don't think, I mean, Iguodala is six foot eight and he's right at the rim. You think there's just no way. And if he hits that shot, game over, championship over. Again, it's, it's like the Ray Allen shot. It, it made the difference between one team winning and one team not winning. And for him to, to make that play from how far he came and to make sure it's not a goaltend and not foul, it's, it's just, it's one of the, the iconic plays in the history of the league. And, you know, he, he had, because he has so much responsibility offensively, um, he doesn't play defense the way he did when he was younger and he can't, and most players at his age can't, but he was always one of the smartest defenders and he knew angles and he knew what he could do. And it, you know, for him to have here, this great offensive machine in terms of scoring and assists, uh, one of the greatest plays he's ever made and the one that won him his championship in his beloved hometown was on the defensive end. And um, that, it was just, it was incredible. Uh, that whole series, the way they came back from three, one down and, and gave a championship to a city that um, when you were in Cleveland, you could, you could feel what it meant to right. those fans, how hungry they were and how desperate they were to get the championship and hear this hometown kid delivers it. Amazing. Well, last question for you. What advice would you give to an up and coming broadcaster who maybe wants to do it on TV or by the time they do it, it'll be VR. Um, what do, what, what advice would you give to a young up and coming broadcaster? Well, I, I think the first thing um, is somehow find a way to get repetition because like anything, uh, you know, when I started, I, I wasn't any good. And I just, I, I just kept working at it and working at it and working at it. And, you know, there are ways to do that even when you're in school. You know, you just sit in front of a television and you call a game off a television or you go to your local, if you're in high school, you go to your local high school. If you're in college, you go to your college and sit up in the Raptors and call the game into a tape recorder uh, and just do it over and over again. And you're just going to get better. And if you don't get better, then you realize maybe it's not for you. But that's the way to get better is by calling repetition and going back and listen to it and, and trying to get a feel for what you like and what you don't like. Uh, the other thing is, is preparation is, is the entire key to it all. Because if, if you're prepared and you know everything about the sport and the teams and the players that you're broadcasting, um, there's a comfort level when you sit down in that chair to call the game because you've got all the information ready. There's nothing that's going to surprise you. You can just worry about, about calling the game. Uh, so those, to me, those are the, uh, are the two things that, that you really have to uh, focus on when you're, when you're first starting. And I think it's also important to, 
to get somebody who is going to tell you the truth. Find somebody, whether it's a friend, whether it's a family member, whether it's somebody in the business who will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. You need somebody to tell you, um, okay, you do this well, but you got to get better at this. Because, you know, um, you know, my mother and father would hear me do a game when I was there. Oh, you did such a great job, son. And of course they're going to say that they love their son. Right. Find somebody who's going to tell you the truth. And I was able to find some people and even uh, now to this day, I've got some people who I say, hey, listen to a game. Tell me what you're thinking. What do you like? What do you don't like? And some of them are in the business. Some of them are just friends who are fans at home who watch everything. And they've really helped me uh, if I'm slipping up on something or something I need to get better on. And I think that's really important to get somebody who's going to give you honest evaluation. You know, the, the tough love, the tough coaching uh, that's going to make you better. That's great advice. And, you know, I think it is true that people always say that basketball players want to be rappers and rappers want to be basketball players. But I think more and more, well, I know from my broadcasters wish they were the starting point guard of the Knicks. And oftentimes, to the dismay of some, but to the belief of me, a lot of those players want to be broadcasters, too. And I think that's happening more and more. So it's funny how uh, everything comes full circle, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because you were, you were talking about when, you know, you might realize broadcasting is not for you. For me, when I realized basketball wasn't for me. <laughs> it's tough to come to that realization. Yeah, I'm a professional baseball player when I was a little kid, and I learned that right away. And, and then basketball, too. I learned that early that I, I was not going to be in the NBA. But that was still, you know, when you're when you're young and just starting out, that's the ultimate goal. What would be better than being a professional professional athlete? But it is also true that, you know, being the great thing about broadcasting, too, is you can do it your entire life. There's no like physical element of it. So you could do, you know, like Vin Scully did. It's literal, you know, the entire life. Um, So I, I think broadcasting does have the edge on sports in that category (laughs) it's a wonderful profession to be a part of and you know the reason I fell in love with basketball was the team aspect Uh, I just loved the idea that you're working with four others on the court and and often if you work together as a team you can beat somebody that another team that had more talent the collection of talent was better they didn't play as well together. And, and that's why I fell in love with basketball and broadcasting basketball is the same thing. It is such a team effort uh, because not only do you have to work with your analyst and your sideline reporter, but the producer and the director and the camera people and the statistician and the graphics people and the video people. It, it's such a cool team effort that when it all comes together and you have one of those, those telecasts that you really feel that everybody nailed it. Um, there's a great team camaraderie that comes off of that, that, that is still, you know, it's still thrilling to this day after doing it so many years. Especially you get, I mean, you get to do Knicks games with Clyde. Clyde's been on the podcast as well. He's the best, just the coolest person in New York. I mean, to be able to do it with him for that long as well. I mean, it doesn't get any better. I'm, I'm living a dream sitting next to that man. Oh man. Well, it's definitely, it is, it has been a dream to have you on the podcast. So Thank you so much for doing this. Everybody can find this man, not through his burner Twitter account, but on every big game on MSG and, uh, and, and everywhere he does the big game. So my friend, Mike, thank you so much for doing this. 
Hey, Buster, it was really fun. I enjoyed meeting you. Uh, look forward to doing it again sometime, meeting you in person, and uh, very, very thrilled and impressed by your success. Thank you. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. Peace. Awesome, man. That was, that was.